So today we are acknowledging some transitions in the life of our church, which are reflective of some transitions that are happening out in our community. Our fifth graders are crossing the threshold from godly play, our children's program, to student ministry. They get to come hang out with me. I am the I, in addition to being a priest on staff, kind of my primary responsibility at the church is to be a pastor to students, 6th through 12th grade, and their families. We also have some graduating seniors in our midst who are getting ready to be on their own in college next year. I, I noticed that these transitions, they kind of bookend my ministry, right? We've got some new, a new class coming in, and we've got a class leaving. It actually wasn't intended to be this way. It just kind of ha- happened to work out in our preaching lo- uh, schedule that I fell on this day. So I will take that as confirmation from the Holy Spirit that he wanted me to speak into that transition some, but also talk, to, talk about our text on the whole as well. And as I was studying this week, um, you, it may be hard to see initially, but what I realized is that our gospel text is actually all about transition, right? If you think about where does this text, John 14, land in John's gospel, it lands smack dab in the middle of Jesus's last instructions to his disciples right before all the events of Holy Week and his death and his resurrection were about to occur. Jesus is kind of giving them some parting instructions, if you will, before the cross and eventually, right, the empty empty tomb. I want to acknowledge that transitions and change, right, they're never easy. So I've got some words of both encouragement and instructions for the students and parents who are entering and exiting student ministry. Um, Right, these are big changes that are happening in our lives. They can be marked with simultaneous feelings of anxiety and fear on the one hand, but also maybe some wonder and excitement, right? Isn't it interesting that we as humans, we can oftentimes hold those two things all together. But again, as I was thinking about what I was going to say this morning, I realized that even if you don't have a student or a grandchild going through this transition, chances are that you are either currently in a moment of transition or you might have some other kind of transition that's looming on the horizon out there. And so the message that I have for us this morning can really be summed up in one point, in four words, really. God is with you. As you walk through life, as you navigate the changes and the transitions, the mundane, God is with you. For you fifth graders, soon to be sixth graders, who are terrified about the prospect of middle school and your parents who may share some of that anxiety, God is with you. I get it. Middle school seems like a scary place. It can make you do weird and funny things like I wanted to fit in when I was a middle schooler. This was the late 90s, early 2000s, and the the hairstyle that was in vogue was blonde bleached hair that was kind of spiky. So guess what I tried to do? (laughs) I I went to to Walgreens and I I bought a, a, a bleach kit and I convinced my mom that it was a good idea, and she, she let me do it, and I dyed my hair. And it did not turn out as expected. I had a, a flame of orange that just like radiated out of my hair. My hair is, is far too dark 
for the over-the-counter bleach to conquer. It's probably an appropriate hairstyle for Pentecost, but, but I'm, I'm not going to go there. But I do want to say, right, that God is with you in these moments of transition. When it feels like your world is shifting and changing, just because there's change that happens doesn't mean that God will abandon you. More specifically, I think this, what this passage reads is that God is with us when we follow his commands and when we listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So picking up a little bit on some of what Father Mark shared in his sermon last week, we see more instructions from Jesus about how we should love. Last week, right, we, Father Mark talked about how we need to have love for one another, that that's a hallmark of the disciples and the church. But Jesus says something different this morning. He says that loving him is reflected in obeying his commandments. Conversely, Jesus also says that those who do not love him will not listen to his words, right? They won't be obedient to his commandments. It seems pretty simple and straightforward. And then again, as I was studying, I noticed this in verse 23. I'm going to read verse 23 again. This is what Jesus says when he's asked by another disciple, not Judas Iscariot. I always think it's interesting when the Gospels give us these little parenthetical notes, right? And so Judas asks him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest or show yourself, right, to us and not to the world? And here, here in verse 23 is how Jesus answers. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. That really stood out to me, right? Jesus says that those who keep his word will not only experience the love of the Father, right? Exactly what Jesus is, was here on earth to communicate, but there's a promise built in there that the Father and the Son will make their home with him or with her, right? The, this obedient child of God will experience God's presence in this mysterious and amazing way. He will make his home with us. And just to be clear, this is not an instance of conditional love for God. I think it's possible you could hear it that way, right? Like, if I do what God says, then he'll love me. That's actually not what, what Jesus is saying. And here's how we know that that's true. Again, the context of where this happens in John's, in John's gospel matters, right? Jesus is giving these last instructions to the disciples before he's about to be arrested and tortured and crucified and eventually rise from the dead, right? And we all know if we've read the story at all, right, that the disciples did not do a very good job in that time period of following Jesus's commands, right? They abandoned Jesus. They run away and hide in shame and fear. But nonetheless, right, that does not change the way that God loves these disciples. Again, right, God's love for us is not based on our ability to obey those commands. However, at the same time, and this is what I want to talk about a little bit this morning, is our ability to follow the commands of, the commands of God, it does give us a different insight into God's character and God's presence rather than when we're disobedient. 
This is because God has chosen to use our lives and our obedience to show forth his glory in the world. I don't know why God does that. If I were God, that's not probably how I would operate. That seems really inefficient, right, to entrust that to people like you and me. But God does anyway because of his love. And because of that love, he's promised to make his home with us, to be present to us as we follow him in all of life's circumstances. Okay, so forgive me for a second. I am going to talk a little bit about student ministry. Because this, this, this way of thinking about how God relates with us has informed how I think about discipleship with our students. Part of how I envision student ministry is actually directly related to the hopes that I have for the students who, like Elijah and those who are going to come in the next class and the next class and the next class, will leave my ministry. I've got this weird phenomenon where I've got a definitive starting point and end point in my ministry. And so because of that, I don't want to take that time for granted. And, and the way I've thought about what I hope to happen in student ministry is where do I hope they are at the end? And then let's work backwards from there and see what we need to do in the meantime. And ultimately, my hope in student ministry for those students who spend time with us, whether it's in our events or or regular weekly gatherings, or camps, or retreats, or things of that nature, even in all the silliness that happens in student ministry, right? A lot of our students can tell you about some of the games that we play and all that stuff. The goal at the end of all of that for me is that because of their time in this ministry, that they would be equipped as with a Christian adult faith for wherever that next step leads them in the world. This means that they need to know that they are, in fact, loved by God and also know how to respond to God's love. I think a really practical way that looks like is knowing that God is with them through all the good and the bad and awkward things like hairstyles gone wrong that happen in your teenage years. One of the things that we do in our student ministry gatherings is something we call highs and lows. They talk about something good that happened in their week. They talk about something bad that happened in their week. Because the goal is to see that God has not abandoned them, even if they are in times of difficulty. It's part of what I want to do is challenge them to think of God less as a concept, but someone who lovingly created them and wants to walk with them through life. And this is where the obedience to God's commands comes in. Following God's commands is actually less about being moral, although that's really an important thing. And following God's commands is really, it's more about reflecting God's character and love back into the world, right? That's what he promises us. When we cooperate with God, that's another way I think you can think about what obedience really is. It's just cooperation with God. We then show God's love and power, and we through our cooperation and our obedience, are the way that God's love and power is known in the world through our witness to him in our obedience. I think this is especially important when our students are challenged by their peers in a society that doesn't always want to love God or keep his commandments. And obviously, those are only challenges that our teenagers face, right, adults? Adults, we never feel this pressure or ask these questions, right? We've got it all figured out. 
not really, right? If we're honest with ourselves. And here's the good news of this passage. We don't have to have all of this figured out, right? Why? Because Jesus promises to send us the Holy Spirit, whom he calls the helper, the paraclete is a a churchy word that gets thrown out. It simply means something along, along the lines of mediator or advocate, right? God knows we can't do this on our own. So he sends us help. Isn't that an amazing and gracious thing that God does? Think back for a moment for those of you who are here to a couple of weeks ago when we had Bishop Neal here for confirmation. The bishop specifically prays during that service for all those who came forward to be confirmed. This is what he prays. He prays that they would be strengthened by the Holy Spirit, that they would be empowered by the Holy Spirit for service in the world, whether they're students or adults, and that they would be sustained for these tasks all the days of their life. Said another way, the Holy Spirit is part of how God is with us in all areas of our life. So we've got Trinity Sunday coming up in a couple of weeks, and you know, normally that's where you get kind of your yearly exposition on the mystery that is the, that is the Trinity. But there's some Trinitarian stuff in play in this passage that I couldn't help but bring up, so indulge me, if you will. Let's look at verse 26. This is what Jesus says about how he sends the Holy Spirit. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, right? Did you catch that? That's the Trinity right there, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit involved. He will teach you all things and bring it to your bring it to your remembrance, all that I've said to you. So here's how that plays out, right? Let's kind of dissect that verse a little bit. The Father sends the Holy Spirit in Jesus's name with a particular task. What is the Holy Spirit here to do? Well, he's here to teach the disciples all the things that Jesus taught and not only to teach them, but to help them remember and interpret and understand why Jesus would teach those things. And what was Jesus' mission, right? If we're going to keep pushing this further, he was sent by the Father to reveal the Father's love for the whole world in word and in deed. And so why is this all important? Why are we talking about the Trinity? Because the work of the Holy Spirit is always integrally tied to the life and teachings of Jesus. That's what I hope you'll see in this passage, right? This is why when we talk about the Trinity, we're not worshiping three different gods. Everything that God does is the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in unity and in cooperation. I think that's what this passage tells us. Be wary of ways of talking about the Holy Spirit that aren't connected back to Jesus, right? That's what Jesus tells us that the Spirit is there to do. It's a connection to the words and the commands and the power to live out those commands that Jesus taught. Lastly, Jesus says that he will leave his peace with them. But it's not just any kind of peace. It's a different peace that Jesus says that he can offer versus what the world offers. Jesus is offering us something called shalom. You've probably heard us use this word before, right? Shalom 
comes from the Hebrew understanding of basically like it's, it's a stronger sense than just what we say with peace, maybe the absence of conflict, right? Really, shalom is about this vision of the whole world operating in the wholeness and goodness of what God intended. That's what shalom is. And again, right, the context of where this verse lands in John's gospel is, again, important. Jesus is telling them that he's leaving them his peace right before one of the most probably traumatic weeks in the lives of the disciples, right? They're about to see Jesus be killed before their very eyes. Again, right, they run and hide in fear and shame. I think the fact that Jesus needs to offer peace should tell us that even when we follow him, that doesn't mean our lives will just be simply serene and easy, right? Again, when we hit those transition points, it can be easy to feel not at peace. Jesus is something that might strike us as slightly out of touch with reality, perhaps, right? He says in verse 27, let not your hearts be troubled. He actually says this in the beginning of chapter 14. We're at the end of chapter 14. And so that remark, let not your hearts be troubled, it kind of bookends this chapter in John's gospel. And what's interesting is in the beginning of the chapter, he says, let not your hearts be troubled. And some of you may be familiar with what he says after that, right? This is where he promises that there are many rooms in his father's house. That word we translate as room is very similar to that word we get for home in our passage, right? The future that God promises for us is tied to the way he's present in our lives right now. What's also interesting is that that first half of John 14, the first time he says, let not your hearts be troubled, is one of the texts that's often used in the burial service in our prayer book. So when we perform a funeral, sometimes we have, you know, we, we can take scriptures from family, but they're also, you know, kind of selected scriptures that we use. And that was the text for the very first funeral that I preached. I was somewhat newly ordained, and I had this text for this funeral. But let me tell you a little bit about the funeral itself. The funeral was for a 12-year-old girl in my previous church who had gotten sick over Christmas break and developed all kinds of unforeseen health complications in the hospital and died about a month later. And so here I am, knowing I'm not alone, looking at this text where Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. And my immediate thought as I'm preparing to preach this first sermon is, but Lord, my heart is troubled. This is a terrible, tragic thing. And as I was studying this passage, I came across one scholar who said that another way we could translate that verse, that part of the verse, let not your hearts be troubled, is let not your hearts be too troubled. And that's when it made sense to me. And my sermon kind of then ended up flowing out of that. And again, I was reminded of that when I came across this point here that Jesus is making, right? Jesus knows that our world is full of trouble. He acknowledges that there's pain and suffering, right? He's not pretending it's not there. But what he's promising is that he will be there with us 
in our midst and walk with us in all the trouble and suffering that we experience in this life. Again, in a, in a moment of vulnerability, right? You guys like honest preachers? Um, my heart has been really troubled over the last two weeks. I think some of you have probably been following the news and have seen all of the different shootings that have been happening across our country, right? A, couple, a week and a half ago, there was a, the shooting in a Korean hair salon in Dallas, right? Seemed to be seemingly targeting the, the Asian business owners there, right? Last week, Saturday, was the shooting in Buffalo, right? We have, there's really not a word other than this. We had a white supremacist, right? He had a hundred page or so manifesto saying how much he hated black people and Jews and all these other things, right? This, this, this man who goes and drives hours from his home to, to target black people and he shoots them. That's troubling. And then a week ago yesterday, some of you may have seen this in the news, some of you maybe haven't seen it, after church in the afternoon, there was a shooting at a church, a Taiwanese-American church in Orange County, California, and the shooter was a Chinese-American man, and it was politically motivated. Some of you may or may not be aware, but and this is not a perfect analogy, but it's at least the starting point. There's a conflict that has been happening for a season between Taiwan and China that is, that is not the same at all, but there's probably some broad similarities to perhaps what's happening with Russia and Ukraine. And I was really troubled by that this week because that church in Orange County, I know exactly where it is. It's 15 minutes from where I grew up and from where my parents currently live. To get to some of my favorite beaches in Orange County, you drive right past that church. It's right there on the highway. And so, right, there is trouble in our world. There are terrible things in our world. But that doesn't mean that God has abandoned us. This week, as I've lamented and grieved all of these deaths, I've, it's pushed me deeper in with God to say, God, I know this is not your character. How can we show your love in a way that changes the way that people understand what it means to love you, right? It changes the way we act in our world. There's so much despair, yet we're not people without hope. I know God is with me and that God is with you, and he wants me to continue to trust and follow him, even when it's hard and it's difficult, right? That's the vision we see in Revelation 21, right? at the end of all things, right? When God accomplishes fully the shalom he intends for the world, all our tears will be wiped away. We'll be at peace with one another. There won't be hatred. There won't be sickness. There won't be death, right? Did you catch the types of trees that line the new heavens and the new earth? They're trees whose leaves are for the healing of the nations. Isn't that a spectacular vision? And in some small way, shape, and form, our obedience to Jesus and showing forth his love in big ways and in small ways, we are part of the way that God's love and God's plan for the world is shown out and borne out. 
right? Jesus never promises the easy road, but he promises to be with us. And he sends us help, the Holy Spirit, to empower us to live lives that reflect his goodness, his beauty, his truth, and his love. All right, I'm gonna turn the page real quick. A word to you parents or anyone else who's in this time of transition or change. God is going to be with you and your students, right? God is actually empowering them and you for whatever it is that is coming forward for them in their middle school years. I'm privileged to be part of that journey as well as some of the other adults in our church who are involved in student ministry, right? He'll be with you in this next season. He'll be with all of us in whatever seasons we're a part of. It's okay to be a little bit afraid, but our trust in God needs to be stronger than our fear. And God is with us because he walks with us and he equips us for every stage of life that we fall into. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.